Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Joined in the studio today by Prem Dua, who is the MD and co-founder of Frank in Thailand. Was previously the co-founder of Orami and also an angel investor. Prem, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sorry, did I get that right? Is it Dua or Dua? No, that's right. They're both, it's just a All pronounced right. potato, potato. All <laughs> right, let's not argue about it. But you're, I mean, it's interesting. When I first saw your name and came across it in public, because you, I mean, you, you appear quite a bit on Thai TV. You're a name that's out there in the, the Thai startup ecosystem. It's, I mean, I was expecting a Thai name. And you look at that and think, that looks Sikh to me. Because, you know, it looks like a Sikh name, but I didn't even know there was a Sikh community in Thailand. So just put me in my place. What's the story? Yes or no, uh, you're Sikh. I right. mean, it's huge here. You've got about like 30, 40,000 people, 40,000 Sikhs in Thailand alone. Um, and I, we all migrated from India, obviously, during the partition. Um, my great-grandfather actually shifted here from India. Uh, my grandparents were actually born in Thailand. My parents were born in right. Thailand, and so was I. So I'm technically third generation Thai, but I, I still look as well Indian as the next guy. <laughs> right, right. right. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing. I mean, the Sikh community. I mean, I don't want to go in too far into it today, but I think there's an important riff here for the whole entrepreneurship and you know business building things that they they're not sort of actively out there promoting themselves. They don't sort of bang the drum a lot. So people don't really know a lot about Sikhs, do they? I mean, you know. They, when they, you look at a seat, you see somebody wearing the turban. Like in the UK, a lot of people confuse them with Muslims, right? So they, they don't yeah. really know a lot about the community. They tend to sort of keep themselves to themselves and just work quite hard. So it's kind of interesting. My first experience of Sikhs in the UK, obviously I'm from the UK. We've got a big yep. Sikh community in the UK. Definitely. And, uh, you know, especially if you go up to sort of the Midlands where, you know, they're, they're pretty much in the majority there in some areas like Wolverhampton and so on. My first real business partner was Sikh. And, uh, you know, a name like Dallywell gives it away, right? I mean, it's quite a common yeah. Sikh <laughs> name. You would know. So, but, yeah. um, so, you know, I didn't really know much about them, but, when I sort of learned about him and his community and his sort of background and so, I mean, you know, they're, they're as English as everybody else. They, you know, they, they love football, but, you know, when it comes to cricket, they love India, of course. You know, they always support India. <laughs> that is, that's the, the written rule, right? Yeah, I, I get asked that all the time. Like if, uh, if uh, India and Thailand are fighting against each other in the Olympics, who would I cheer for? That's, and that's a tough one to answer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. But I mean, you know, I think that the, of all the communities, you look at the immigrant communities in the UK, they're probably one of the most successful. And they, you know, there's a sort of a history there that they, they came, I guess, like your parents, they came from the Punjab. You know, these a lot of these yeah. families were farmers. They came to the UK. They didn't have anything. They just traded. They learned how to trade. They, they took jobs where they could. And they all kind of lived together in houses of like 20 people, you know, all the brothers and cousins and stuff like that. You know, they yeah. invested in real estate, cash and carry. But, you know, there's this really interesting story. The second generation become doctors and dentists and, you know, like the super successful professionals within society, right? So, I mean, how, how has it sort of panned out in Thailand? Is there a similar kind of theme there? Oh, I'll tell you what, actually, believe it or not, the Thai community actually hasn't panned out that much into the professional world. So what ended up happening was 
they ended up taking over their father's businesses and just expanding the family business onward. So the right. Thais actually have a word, like they actually have a phrase that they call all Sikhs. They call us Naihang, which pretty much means shop owner. Oh, wow. Um, there you so, go. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and it, I think that's what happened here, essentially. What the people here did more was actually... a you know, do the businesses themselves. And I also think it's because of the country itself. At Back then, you know, you look at like, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the job mm. market wasn't that great. The pay wasn't as enough to, you know, to raise an entire family on unless you were really uh, a, a working professional, like you said, like an engineer or a doctor. So a lot of people didn't have the capital or the patience, mm. I guess, to go through that kind of education um, to get wow. to that level. So we actually have very few professional Sikhs in Thailand. More of them are actually business owners. Wow, that's really interesting. But you, you got yeah. the name shop owner. I mean, that's universal for Sikhs, surely. I mean, that, that's amazing. I mean, look at, look at the UK when, when the Sikhs bought, you know, they were the corner shop owners, so to speak. That was the, the, the you know, the, the name, the tag came from, you know, there's like, there's yeah. movies about it. I mean, you know, about Sikh communities in the UK owning corner shops and so on. They, they sort of moved into that, that business and traditionally the, the UK news agents, as they were called, which would be like a convenience yep. store, right? They would yep. open just weird hours. They would close at six, you know, they'd close Saturday and Sunday. And, and then the sort of the seat community came in and they, they were like open 24 hours, give, you know, give people what they want. They were like, okay, this is what people actually want. And they completely dominated that scene, right? I mean, because they were just so successful at giving the British customers what they wanted. That's generally a good way to do business, right? Give customers what they want. Right, right. Exactly. Well, I mean, there's an interesting angle there. I mean, that, you know, obviously you have that community in the UK, you have that community in Thailand, and they are generally quite successful. So, I mean, your family's background, were they shop owners? What, what sort of businesses were they running? No, it's actually the way exactly what you said initially. It started off as trading. So my right. grandparents were here. They didn't actually, you know, they didn't have anything. It was pretty much arbitrage. You know, find a product somewhere else and, you know, sell it to someone else at a little bit higher price and higher margins. And you keep doing that to a certain level and you start understanding the market. Then you start taking more risks by, you know, absorbing more inventory. You start buying more products and you start ranging out and trying to find different types of products. You keep finding the customer. It's just hustle. You just got to right. hustle and that's what my granddad did. And my, my, my dad, he joined the business before even graduating from college. So he only did like one, he literally dropped out of college to do, you know, the family business. And mm. it, it worked out very well for them because with the timings that they entered the market and, and when they were doing at that time, nobody else was doing. So we pretty much, you know, became the, <laughs> yeah, the, like all Indians became the monopoly of textiles in, right, in right. pretty much Thailand oh, from that. It was textiles that they were selling. It was textiles. Initially, all started off as textiles. So you're talking about like, you know, basic cotton, right, right, right. Uh, you know, polyester, that sort of materials and, you know, used in everyday type clothing. Right, right. So were you surrounded at a young age by hustlers? You know, was that sort of like the, the natural default of the family? I think so, yeah. I mean, I saw my dad, I saw my granddad. I mean, they just, like, my dad would tell me stories about how he'd have to take a car, like, you know, drive up all over Thailand to go talk to customers, to go right. collect money from them, to go deliver goods. My granddad would be like, oh, I used to walk with, like, you know, rows of cloth on my back and just go deliver it right. by hand sometimes. Right, right. So you start in that, you get an idea of what they've been doing and what they did for you to get the life that you have. And you just start realizing that, wow, right. okay, I mean, these guys are true entrepreneurs because they're they're making profitable businesses without any equity selling or yeah. any other funding from external sources, and they're making it work. Right, right. It's interesting, isn't it? That sort of style of entrepreneur. These are people that start with nothing, you know. And the idea of, as you say, like getting angel investors in to fund that business is just 
well, it just doesn't go in that scene, does it? These are people that yeah. purely by hard work and I think we talk a bit more about it as well, not giving up became successful, right? Yeah, very much. I really believe in that not giving up part. It's it's fundamental to everything. Right. So was there a lot of pressure on you when you went to college then to drop out and join the business? Or did they sort of then say, okay, right, now's the time to get our kids into, you know, like professional, you know, disciplines oh, or whatever? So my my dad was very supportive of me when he told me to go to college. And, you know, I mean, he, we all knew that, uh, for, particularly for me, I knew that going to college wasn't about actually experiencing the, the getting knowledge or anything like that. It's more about life experiences because, I mean, I, I I tried college in Thailand. I tried college in the States before. I've tried college in the Australia before. And you start realizing that education is, is pretty much the same. The material that they're using is all the same. It's just the life experiences that you get from being that environment. And that's that's what helped me out more. But in terms of like what I was supposed to do next, my, my parents never pushed me to join the family business. I mean, I'm the oldest son of the oldest son. So there wow. is, you know, like... By theory, there should be some pressure there, but I actually never felt it because my dad kept me shielded from that. And he said, look, I didn't pay for all this for you to go to college, to go to high school and expensive university or whatever. Mm. I didn't pay for all of that so that he could come back and eventually work for me anyways. For, working for me just requires experience. Right, right, I want right. you to try and do something else and take my business to the next level. And I, I respected that. And I said, okay, let's try that. So right, that's right. what I've been doing so far. So when you graduated, was it natural that you were going to become an entrepreneur? Was there any sort of other way of thinking about it or were you thinking like, i'm going to go out and get some experience in the in the working world first actually that's exactly what i did i was like i need i need some experience in the working world in a professional world right, i mean right. throughout college i i really blossomed in college because i i did a sales job i was a telemarketer on mm. the like you know selling telephone plans internet plans to like competitor companies and cold calling customers so that that got rid of the fear of rejection for me because when you're talking to customers daily on the phone and they're rejecting you about like 120 times a day, you're not going to fear rejection anymore. Anyone mm. says no to you, you're like, okay, let's go to the next one or let's try a different method or you know a different tactic. Right. Um, and that worked out very well. Uh, what were you actually doing? It, were you just phoning through lists or what sort of cold calling that's were you doing? Exactly, that's exactly what I was doing. I was calling <laughs> through lists. Uh, I was telling, I was selling uh, Optus to Telstra customers in oh. Australia and I don't know if you know, but like, you know, Optus is like the second company. Yeah. Telstra is the number one in Australia. They're the biggest by far. The government owns. So it's it's like you have Vauxhall and Holden. They're just iconic items in Australia. Yeah. Telstra is just one of those things. So to get those customers to switch to you, where you're like a young, new company, that, that was a difficult sell. Right. And it was just all about, you know, putting out the USPs of the company and, you know, pulling all the stops and about the customer service and just trying to find the pain points that the customer are facing and then leveraging that to get them to become your customer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to know a little bit more about this because when I, my first real job in the working world after I graduated, I came, well, after I came back from Japan, back to London, it was uh, I got a cold calling job effectively in financial services selling life assurance over the phone. And I can remember my boss at the time when he, cause he, they sold this whole thing like, oh yeah, it's like being self-employed. I thought, well, this is, this is amazing. I want to start my own business. And he said, you know, you can do, you know, you can uh, uh, start anytime you want as long as it's before eight o'clock in the morning. And then he <laughs> said, you know, we had to do like 120 calls a day through these lists. And, you know, if you didn't do 120 calls a day, they would physically duct tape the phone to your head and make you stand in the corner. It was like pretty boiler room stuff. So I'm always curious to know what sort of experiences people take away from that, because I think it makes you or breaks you, doesn't it? What about for yourself? 
Oh, very much so. I mean, look, for me, like the first three months on the job, being my first job ever, I've never applied for another job before. Um, I had no experience in selling. Like, customer called me, when I called the customer and they'd say like, no, I'm not interested. I put down the phone. I'd be like, "Why were they not interested?" You know, right. that 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 feeling of rejection was just like painful. Right. So it took me a while. And honestly, for the first three months, I you know I was almost gonna fail probation. My my manager at that time was like, "Look, you don't have it in you." I'm like, "I do. Just give me one more chance." And he's yeah. like, "All right, I'll give you one more week." And then from that one week, I turned it around, and I've been I worked at that company for about two years in total. Wow. And I shifted up, like you know, the basic to like becoming a team leader, and I also got like my name on the plaque for being one of the top salespeople during a period. So that was, it, it just took time for me to come out of my little shell of mine, the little mm. protected bubble. Yeah, well, what? How did yeah. you turn it around in that week? I mean, it's just. I, you know what? It's all about effort and not giving up. I mean, like wow. literally, I called more customers. I stayed in a little bit longer, and I actually changed my approach a little bit. So what I started doing was actually listening to some other phone calls that my right, colleagues yeah. were making who are doing really well. So I'd actually come in earlier from before my shift and listen to the, you know, my colleagues' phone calls and see how they did it. And I just mimic it. I mean, I just started copying it. And at the end of the day, it's just like, okay, copy and then adapt yeah. and essentially make it your own. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how important that is for young startup founders to take that advice on board. You know, success is out there, right? You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And one of the best ways to become successful is to model successful people, right? And you took that on board. I I wonder as well, whilst you're sitting there in that that sort of do or die week, whether you're kind of thinking of your great granddad and grandfather and stuff like that, and their sort of attitude, do you think that influenced you in that week to get it done? And not not consciously, no, but I think subconsciously it was always there because it was the week, believe it or not, the reason I had to get a job in college was because I failed my only subject and they wouldn't let me pass the next year until I passed it. So I had to go back for six months, which and I only had that one subject to do for six months and I had a lot of free time on my hands. So I had to get a job. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Otherwise, I didn't have the heart in me to go ask my, you know, my dad to pay for my college or to pay for my room or stay for six months just for one subject. Um, so it was, it was out of necessity. Um, and if you ask me whether I was thinking about my granddad when that was going on, like in a fairy tale land, I would say yes. But in reality, it was just like, no, I need, I need to do this. I need to get this done. If I don't get this, I'm not going to have money to pay for my food. And I'm going to call my dad and ask him for more money. And that's just not something nice you want to (laughs) do. Exactly. But you, you know that you can't. Well, you could, but you won't pick up the phone and ask for the bailout, right? Which is exactly, yeah. Right, okay, so I mean, that's kind of where I think the influence is, isn't it? Because th- there's a sort of a story there about comfort, isn't it? That your 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 family had come to Thailand and they didn't know any comfort, right? All, all they know was the hustle. Because if they didn't hustle, they didn't eat, right? And over the generations, obviously, they, they improved and got better. But you know, that's sort of still with you, which in, in a way is so important for any kind of startup founder, isn't it? That sort of ingrained hunger, that desire to hustle, which is, is not sort of built on naturally, you want to be successful, but at the end of the day, you, you don't want to sort of, you know, you don't want to have everything on the plate for you. You want to go out and challenge yourself. And, and I think we'll, we'll sort of learn a bit more about overcome some challenges as well, about never giving up, because that's kind of a theme really in your sort of Definitely. entrepreneurial. And look, 
I mean, a lot of people mistake this for just being applicable to only entrepreneurs, but believe it or not, if you're working within a company and you're trying to make your way up in that corporate ladder, then this works, this applies to you as well. I mean, not giving up could mean like, you know, you're playing politics in the internal court in the, in the corporate cogs. You're, you're trying to get your boss to do something for you. You're trying to convince him of an idea. That's, that's all about not giving up as well. I mean, it applies to everyone, not just entrepreneurs who are working in their own companies. Mm, yeah. That's good advice. Hey, we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's talk about your day job, so to speak, and I say that with uh, not to say it with any sort of disrespect to the, the company you're building, but it, it's what you do. It's what keeps you occupied. This is your full-time thing, is Frank, right? I mean, it's an insurance. Yes, that's right. Okay, so people may know of it. I mean, if they're in Thailand, they would have seen the Penguin. You know, it's the insurance company. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of this and how this started. Okay, so the idea for Frank actually came about when we saw there was a big gap in the market. Essentially, you know, you did some research, you see which country you wanted to launch in first, and you realize that, look, I mean, insurance has been a field that has been stagnant for so many years. Not that there's no growth in sales, it's just this it's stagnant innovation. Nobody has done anything new in the insurance field since mm. the tele, since telephones. I mean, all, all that did was change it from face-to-face selling to the you know, call center calling. After that, in Thailand, it's been very, very quiet, very, very stagnant, but there was a clear demand for it because the country was still massively under, underinsured. And we have plenty of cars in Thailand in terms of car insurance requirements, and it, it just seemed like the perfect fit. And me, myself, being from Thailand alone, I have expertise in selling products online from my previous company. Uh, the investors actually found me, and they said, you know what, we, we want to do this idea with you. And I said, let's, let's do it, because I was really intrigued by the proposal. Well, how did that happen then? So the investors already had an idea, but just needed somebody to be the, you know, to make it happen? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, right. they, they had an idea. I helped them polish it out. I told them what would work, what would not work. Mm. Initially came on board as like a semi-consultant, but then they realized the potential that I had and it, it worked out. Right. Okay. Well, we'll unpack Frank in a minute and some of your amazing reviews as well, which we've got to talk about because that's a key part of this sort of you know, you're doing something different that the other insurance providers aren't doing. And we'll talk about that. But when these investors came to you and talked about insurance, you know, did you initially get it? Because, you know, your background, obviously, you go way back in the family, you've got the retail background, the textile backgrounds. Insurance, how does that fit into everything that you know? It didn't at all. I mean, I had no idea about insurance, except for the stuff that I had to buy for my own personal use. But what intrigued, see, for me, I'm like salesperson by nature. You, you always realize that there's opportunity everywhere. Um, and you start understanding that, okay, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to know the product. Because when I was selling pet products initially, I mean, yeah, I have a dog and a cat, but I didn't know the depth of pet products that were available in the market. And certainly I didn't know about baby products when I expanded into that category or yet alone vitamins or makeup. You know, yet I was able to sell them because... It, it's, it's all about the sale and all about the strategy. And at, at the end of the day, it all boils down to the same thing. If you're the salesperson and you're selling a product, you, you take a little time to learn the product. And if you're able to sell naturally, you're going to be able to sell anything. Right. So when you say so, it's all about the sale, what, what do you mean though? Because here's the thing, right? I think a lot of startup founders today, and obviously I know this applies to everybody who, who's not an entrepreneur as well, but in our industry, in tech, in startups, in the ecosystem, when people talk about sales, they tend to sort of shy away a little bit. Then you speak of sales as if it's a noble discipline, right? Which is sort of going against the grain of how people sort of, you know, they say, oh, I didn't do an MBA to do sales type thing, right? So <laughs> I, I, I completely believe in sales. I mean, 
you know, startups fail because either the sales are below the costs or the costs are above the sales. You know, sales is the lifeblood of any business, right? So, hundred percent, absolutely. And you talk about it with with pride as well. So, when you say it's all about the sale, just unpack what what is it that how is it that you approach the sale differently to some of these people who don't have that kind of positive experience of sales and not approaching it. Look, I mean, it's a mindset. I mean, even now, like when I'm doing it and I'm selling insurance online as a company, um, yeah, we do have a call center who's all actively calling customers and um, getting getting back to customers who have dropped their information on our site. I, I still do those kind of calls right now as well because I don't shy away from it. I actually find pride in it. If you're able to actually bring in revenue for the company, right. that that is a noble thing. That is that's massive. That's the bread and butter right there. Mm. Every company eventually wants to do that, and I honestly 100% feel that if you want to be a good entrepreneur at one point in time in your life or the other, you have to be, have done some sort of sales. Yes. That's what keeps you grounded. It, it keeps you grounded to the customers. You when you're doing sales, you're looking at what the customers want what their pain points are, what they're willing to pay for a product, uh, what kind of products they do need, what they don't need. You'll, you'll get so in touch with the customer that if anyone asks you anything, you'd be able to answer it straight off the bat because, one, you'll have to know your product in and out to pitch it to the customer, and two, you'll know everything about the customer because you've asked the right questions and you can judge what they need. It, it is an, it's the, You take that knowledge, you can apply it to marketing, you can apply it to content writing, you can apply it to website design, you can apply it to the tech that you need to build to give that customer what they need. At the end of the day, it all comes from the point of contact with that customer, yeah. and that point of contact is sales. Yeah, so yeah. I definitely don't shy away from that. I, I love that aspect. Love it, it, love it. And I love it yeah. when you say that every entrepreneur should have sales experience. At some point, try it, get out there. Because, you know, it will open doors for you. Just open doors in your mind as well. I mean, I had a telecoms business back in the UK, back in sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, whenever we recruited people to the business, I'd always look for sales experience, even if they weren't going to be a salesperson. So if they were a marketing manager or they were a research you know, person, what have they done? It, even if, you know, it might not have been telesales, like the hardcore cold calling that you had done, Prem. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they could have worked in retail, which is sales. And, you know, if they were in the shop floor, if they were sort of greeting customers when people walked into the, the shop, to me, that's sales, right? I mean, there's many different types of sales. That's the point, isn't it? That... You know, many yeah. different ways of selling. We all live and die by selling. So get out there and get sales experience. That's the most important thing for any entrepreneurs I mean, out there. You think about it as an entrepreneur, as a founder, when you're pitching to a VC, what essentially are you doing? You're selling yeah. your company to them. That, that You have to be able to sell that, right? You have yeah. to sell that vision. You got to sell that idea. The same thing you do with a customer. Um, right now, what am I doing to the viewers and listeners out there? I'm selling myself. Yeah. I'm selling my knowledge. I'm selling my ideas. It's the same thing. Tony Robbins does it on stage. It's absolutely. Yeah, we all live and die by selling, Prem. So yeah, when, when you're in the when you're in the the Frank um, headquarters, when you're in the office, and you know if anybody wants to actually see Prem in action, there's plenty of videos, and we'll put these in the show notes as well. Is that you know there's videos out there of you in your office on Thai TV, so people can get an understanding of what you look like and you know how you sort of roll. Do you ever get on the phone and make a sales call just for the hell of it? Every day. Oh, you do? Every day. Yeah, yeah, every day. Well, because I you enjoy it, it or just why, why do you, you don't need to because you're the, you're the founder. You've got, you've got a team of people who can do that for you, right? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I, I enjoy it, honestly, and it really keeps me grounded with the customer. And honestly, 
it's a huge motivational factor when they can when the the ground level guys which normally get ignored yeah. by the you know upper management when they see that you know the md or the co-founder is coming down to their level and working with them and doing the same things that they're doing is able to do it successfully it gives them motivation it gives them a lot of motivation mm. yeah absolutely no, and that's i mean if you you've done sales before you know exactly how it is when you're motivated your mindset changes the way you talk your tone your constant your confident level increases and that that could be that tiny little difference to make you close that one sale. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember from my experience that those days of making those boiler room type life assurance sales, you know, doing a hundred calls a day. I can remember one of the partners came in and he was just like, you know, an old guy who he didn't need to do sales, but you know, he was in his fifties at the time, but just came in for the hell of it. Cause he loved doing sales, came back to the office and yeah. he gave a little speech about how he did his pictures and so on. And, you know, I remember straight after that speech, I went and made some calls and I just got, my close rate went doubled that day. I was just closing, like left, I was on fire. Everything, Midas touch, just because this guy came in and influenced me because, you know, what had changed? I, I don't know. Was it just motivation or, or it, I, I don't know, maybe it was in my mind, I was thinking like, I could actually close this one. And that's so important, isn't it? Because if you go into a, exactly. a call thinking you ain't going to do it. Yeah, so for us, is actually the difficult part of it is actually taking this experience, taking this knowledge that we have of sales and converting it into a technical know-how so that we can actually use technology to make this process easier for customers. Right. So that's what that's how Frank differs from our competitors, actually. If you look at our competitors, like in the insurance brokerage industry, they've got 6,000 salespeople. They've got, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's the biggest competitor. Our second biggest competitor has got 900 sales team. And at Frank, we've only got 15. So right. obviously, we're not trying to do the traditional business model where we're calling customers and trying to close them on the phones. We want to get the sales process and everything driven online. and But the knowledge for it, the know-how of how to get the customer interacting with us and what they want, what they need, essentially comes from this. We take this knowledge, we convert this into unique technologies that we build for our customers. And that's how we're able to do it. That's how we're so different from them. How? How do you do that? I mean, how does a team of 15 compete with 900 or thousands? Well, we're looking at advance. We're looking at in the future. I mean, at like if you look at the team of 6,000, 7,000, I mean, the only reason they're able to survive right now is because in Thailand, labor cost is really cheap. Mm. So being cheap labor costs, I mean, if the government suddenly decides tomorrow to increase the, you know, the average daily rate for these guys by 100 baht, which is only $3, you know, it's not much, but you 6,000 multiplied by daily rate of 100 baht multiplied by the 20 working yeah. days, that's yeah. a huge amount of money for these companies. Yeah, yeah. But it won't have, yeah, it won't affect a company like me because we're trying to focus on closing these sales online. Now the search volumes and everything else like this has been growing constantly. The only issue is that it's not mainstream yet. And that's completely normal. You look at what Lazada did back in the day with e-commerce when they first entered the market. They was nobody buying anything online. It was a very small market. They had to invest a lot of time and effort into changing it. Now eventually seven, eight years later they are number one. That's what we're aiming to do. So this is not a short term one, two, three year play for us. This is like a a long-term six seven year play right right so how do you do that because there's also danger isn't there if you have and i'm, I'm speaking from my experience is that you know if you have a team of sales guys is that if you only focus on the sales then you, you can build a business which is it doesn't get any traction you know you can get a lot of revenues but they don't come back and so on so you have to have something else in the process right what, what is it that you focus on on a day-to-day -day basis how do you get your team, those salespeople focus six to seven years out because salespeople by nature, and 
this is their strength and as well as their weakness, are quite short-term focused, aren't they? Because they, they're all about, I've got to get this deal, I've got to get this target for the next quarter and so on. How do you work that? Well, it's a multi, it's a multi-prong approach. So you got the you have to have like targets for both short term and long term. So for the short term is you know you got the sales team and you got to split up by processes as well. So that sales team bring in the sales, the short term aspect, and the long term aspect actually gets handled by a different team, which is like you know the team of renewals. So their core focus is right. to get these customers to come back every year, and their turnover and the mentality of these customers are very different because they're more focused on the customer's first service aspect of it, and that's one of the reasons why Frank has a four. 4.9 star rating out of five on Facebook, yeah, which yeah. is actually number one in Thailand at the moment. Yeah. So 235 you know, ratings, by the way. You know, it's not just like yeah, four exactly. or five people. It's not just Prem and his mates. It's 235 <laughs> yeah. people. So go and check it out. Yeah, exactly. So we'll, we we keep focusing on customer service because right. I mean I don't want to compete on price. I've I've done the price game before, and at the end of the day, everyone just ends up losing. Um, so for me, it's like, look, I'd rather get that emotional attachment from customers to come to us because we're providing good service. Yeah. And by doing that, in the future, if there is a price hike or a difference in you know from our price and competitors' price, customers will take that service into consideration. And the same way they do with that Apple, you know, Apple iPhone or compared to Samsung or compared to a Huawei, which is much cheaper, mm. but the same hardware, right? You're yeah. buying it because you're getting that branding, you're getting that service, you're getting that quality that you're sure of. Exactly. Or Starbucks so versus to... McDonald's coffee, right, as an example. Exactly. Right? I mean, that tastes, it, it tastes the same, especially yep, in exactly. Thailand. You look at, I mean, I'm sure you've been to Australia and UK before. There are a lot of coffee shops and baristas on the oh, side yeah. that make excellent boutique coffee. But, yeah, exactly. People buy on emotion and justify with logic, right? And that's where the yeah. service comes. So you're talking about customer service, and I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that because when I listen to you, Prem, I think about Tony Shea and Sapos because, you know, here's a guy who built a company which he sold to Amazon, right? So, yes. you know, he his mantra was customer service is the best marketing strategy, right? And, you know, it was all about, getting people to recommend the business and obviously they were big on net promoter score they're big on repeat business i think you know they're as a retail business their sort of repeat customer rate was like significantly higher than the rest of the industry right and that was all about just having the people on the front line who cared you know there's all those kind of stories about what zappos did to their customers and so on so you know, I wonder how how do you sort of have you know how how do you have that sort of focus on customer service because it's, it's easy to say, isn't it? We're really customer centric, but you know everybody's customer centric in their you know their, <laughs> yeah. their prospectus, right? But how do you actually make them customer centric? Care about that? Sometimes it's just literally drilling it into the people in the team's head again and again. I mean. I, I've often said this in my interviews before as well. Your cus your your first customers of your company are actually your employees. Yes. They're the ones that have actually invested in you and saying, Okay, I'm gonna come buy your product and actually work within your company. It's the same thing. If you can't get them to get the idea that what you stand for, then your customers are never gonna get it. So you know, part of the interview process, I make sure my HR do this and I make sure I do this as well in every orientation. Like till date, if we have a new joinee, I still I still personally do the orientation with every newcomer into the company mm -hmm. because I want to make sure they understand what our company stands for and that they can talk about it and feel proud of it and speak to it and repeat it to the customers. Right. Oh, what are you so, looking for? I mean, how, how do you – because personality is so important because you can't train – that attitude, can you? There's certain things you can That's sort right. of modify, but what are you looking for when those people come and sit across you? What makes that person, yeah, that is the person who I want on the front line? 
I asked I asked actual experience type you know type questions like right. I asked like hypothetical questions as well in terms of like you know what would they do in a certain situation and right. honestly like I, I just look at their body language when they're answering are they you know excited to answer that are they smiling right. are they happy are they nervous are they scared of me you know how they approach me really defines as well because for someone like me at the MD level and C, you know CMO yeah. level hey, sorry the co-founder level sitting down and talking to a regular sales employee coming in they they get a little bit nervous but if someone is has that personality they won't get as nervous they'll be more open they'll be a little bit more smiling they'll be joking around as well because yeah. i make sure they smile and laugh in an interview i don't want them to be nervous i want them to be comfortable this is a comfortable working environment that i put them in right right so i make sure that happens and those are the small things i look for hypothetical questions are really a big deal i'd ask them questions like you know if you did have a conflict within us you know employees within each other how would you deal with it how have you handled it and i'll tell them to give me a real life example from the past as well yeah the, it helps me gauge them. And at the end of the day, you can't get 100% right, but that's what you have the probation period for. And right. You just got to make sure that if someone doesn't fit your company culture, you just got to re- you got to get rid of them really quickly because that person has the potential to impact all the other people they're working with as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's important why, I mean, this is, this is the challenge long-term for you, I guess, isn't it? That you're part of that process, that you can... I, I guess what you're doing is, is a lot of the brand in your business is you. You know, the fact that that's where the, the culture comes from. It starts with you and your founders, right? It's that, that yeah. you lead by example. You know, you are there, you get on the phone, you show people that this is the core lifeblood of the business, right? And that's so important. And the challenge then long-term is to how do you scale that? Because you can't be in every single, you know, recruitment meeting because, you know, what happens Definitely. when you're thousands, right? Have you ever thought of that? Because, you know, so much of this is always, locked always. into your personality, right? Which is the real strength so- of your business. I mean, that's why hiring is so important because the people like my lieutenants, let's put it to my left hand, right hand, they work underneath me and they work within, you know, they're my direct reports. I make sure they they have the same personality as I do. I make sure they work in the same manner as I do as well. I make sure they deal with the problems the same way as I would. And I always tell them, I always sit down and talk to them. I take them out for lunches. I train them. I speak to them the way I would normally you know, to speak to a friend and I, I make sure I'm approachable to them as well so that when they do face an issue like this, they're dealing with it appropriately. Right, right. I mean, that's all you're going to have to do. I mean, there are some things that you can do as a founder at a, at a more scalable level, like town halls and, you know, weekly meetings with different department, department heads. Yeah, those are scalable methodologies you can still keep doing as the company scales. Uh, you're just doing it with different people. But mm. at the lower end level, you just got to make sure that your middle managers and the managed people below that are also emulating what you want them to say and speak. It, it is always difficult. And I, I know, like, for example, Apple also lost it. Google also has an issue with this because they have that culture. So sometimes they actually make it into a policy. Um, mm. That's another way to fix it in terms of long term. Yeah. How do you deal with the mistakes as well? Because this is obviously, obviously you know, we always talk about the positive aspects of running your business. There will be things that go wrong and you will make mistakes, even though you've got four, 4.9 rating, you're going to make mistakes because you have human beings running the business, right? And yeah. how, how do you deal with that? You know, people are going to screw up. They're going to send somebody the wrong premium or, or whatever. They're going to get the address wrong or spell the name wrong. Or, how it do you, happens how, all the time. Right. But how, how do you... Exactly. You don't have necessarily have to have a policy about that, but how do you do deal with that by example? Because I guess this is what differentiates you between you and the big guys, because you can do something about it, which is personal. What do you do? 
Actually, I make it into a policy. So I make sure that, look, if we have a customer's problem, if we have a service problem, we don't shy away from it. If a customer puts a bad review on our site, we make sure we fix it so that everyone sees that we know, we have acknowledged that bad review, and we've fixed it as well. So that's one thing I make sure that as a policy. Any bad review that we have or any bad customer feedback that we have, it has to be followed through the entire way and fixed. And even And we need to let the customer know and whatever public posting that they've made be aware that we've fixed that problem for the customer and the customer is right. happy with the end result. And if they're not happy with the end result, we will apologize. In fact, we actually have a, a, a sorry letter that we send out to every customer without them even having to ask for it. Uh, we actively apologize to customers for making a mistake. Sometimes mm. the customer don't even know the mistake's been made. It's oh, just wow. a slight delay in their delivery hmm. time. But we'll send them an apology letter before anyways and letting them know. I mean, a lot of this is preempting that that. You know, that feedback, and right. if you preempt it, chances of you getting it is actually very, very slim. Customers, believe it or not, they're actually much more understanding than you think. They're human beings just like we are. They understand how exactly. it works. Exactly. A lot, of a lot of companies fail in that they try to hide the problems from the customer, and that's what the customers don't really like. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of starts internally in the, in the corporate environment, doesn't it, where, you know, people will hide that from the boss because they're scared the boss might shout at them. And therefore, exactly. you know, that, that sort of, you know, that's the DNA of the organization, isn't it? That, that whole sort of, you know, catching people doing something wrong. I can't remember if it's Peter Drucker or somebody said, catch somebody doing something right in the organization. That's what you should do as a boss, right? You go around and rather than yeah. try and find the mistakes. So, I mean, I think about insurance companies, Prem, and, you know, tell me how you're doing this differently. Because when I think of an insurance company, the only time I ever hear from them is, is, you know, when it's like two weeks before the premiums do the <laughs> yeah. renew. And they're like, oh, I've just caught, you've forgotten about your car insurance and I've just caught you at the, so they must time it perfectly because they know that that's the sort of optimum period when I really can't be asked to look around the, the market for a new alternative quote. So they think, well, they must have timed it. There must be science behind it. Like 9.7 days is the optimum time for a customer who, you know, at that point, they're not going to go and look for something else in the market. So they say, here's your new premium. We're going to renew it for you. Okay. All right. I, I give up. You just increase it by five or 6% every year, whatever you do. And I'll just stick with this insurance company. That seems to be the default for how insurance companies play their game. How, how do you do that? Surely you must do it differently. You must do something because that's no way to to win customer service long term, is it? No, that's definitely no. For us, is we try to keep the conversation with the customer throughout the year, so we don't leave a gap. Because for me, is I don't want to risk that. See, if a customer decides to look for a policy one month before the expiry date, and if I don't catch them before, I'm risking that customer going to someone else and somebody else selling to them. So mm. what I do is throughout the year, I will keep a communication with that customer. Now I do it in a very different way. So we have an internal. Uh, loyalty program called a penguin privilege program now we've actively gone out to get partnerships like lazada agoda you know uh, booking.com uh, traveloka uber grab these sort of partnerships that have joined us and are actually willing to give our customers discounts and every time we get a new discount or a new partnership we actually actively blast that out to the customers so that they're constantly understanding that hey frank's taking care of us not just for mm. one you know for that one period in time they're taking care of us throughout the entire year on top of that we also have our content team who are constantly generating new new material uh based on market trends so on travel and car insurance on motorcycle insurance and we're actively sending this out to customers as well so they're constantly engaged with us if they're engaged with us the entire year, when it comes time to making a decision, they're not going to be worried or scared or even thinking about looking anywhere else. Mm -hmm. 
so, they're less likely to do so. Right, right. So, I mean, if you take that sort of strategy and that DNA and look at the insurance market in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Asia, maybe, is what space is there for a company of your size? Is there a space for sort of a boutique, customer-focused, you know, very personal insurance company? Or does it have to grow? Do you have to become the size of, you know, like the, the multinationals, the Axis and all these kind of people to to compete? What does it mean long-term? Well, in terms of the brokerage space, I think there's definitely space to go. Insurance companies are always going to want to sell more and more. Um, so there's always going to be in the demand for people selling these type of products. Uh, I don't see that there's any limitation on how the insurance company can grow as well because the products that are being released in the market is always more comprehensive and is getting people who are underinsured at the moment to become more insured. Um, so there's definitely space. But in terms of competition, I mean, we're not actually comp- competing with the insurance companies directly, right? We're competing with all the other brokers who are selling for these insurance companies. Mm. The biggest risk for us is actually the insurance companies themselves turning around and going direct to the consumers because exactly. that cuts out the middlemen. Now, that's something that we're fully aware of and we understand that it could happen in the future. So we're trying to find ways to safeguard it as well um, in ways of like working very closely with the insurance company and sharing information with them and giving them to create different and unique products specifically for us. Right, right. But isn't that sort of in, in the, the context of, let's say, financial services, the same as, you know, direct-to-customer versus an independent financial advisor, for example, who, in theory, acts in the best interest of the customer by, you know, checking or getting a complete set of what's available in the market? Mm-hmm. Or obviously, the big life companies, as an example, sell direct to the customer. But they're just, they're just machines, right? They, you know, they have their sales forces, their field sales forces, but they don't care about customer service. I mean, you know, no. Exactly. It's the broker and agent that actually generally cares about the customer because they're get, that's where their bread and butter is, and they know they get the renewals from these customers. Right. The insurance companies themselves don't really. You just got to pray that the agent and broker is acting on your behalf, on your best interest. I've had cases with both, you know, like in personal experiences, like when I bought life insurance, because at the moment, Frank doesn't do life insurance. We only do non-life. So I've had cases where the broker sold, you know, my family a policy. Um, and when it came time, like, you know, uh, we got into an accident, we tried to claim the broker disappeared. And the insurance company suddenly said, oh, we, we, we're not covering this. Here's your money. Uh, wow. We're keeping your money as well, but we're not covering this. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. That, that, yeah. that, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a different in subjects entirely, but you know, being a life insurance company, I always wondered about the what what kind of business model was that where you'd only pay pe- you know pay out to dead customers, right? It's sort of it's just a bizarre sort of business entirely. So I mean, they don't need to be focused on customer service, do they, to win that game? It's just anyway. But that that's a, another discussion entirely. I want to sort yeah, of change yeah. gears a little bit and talk about entrepreneurship and the whole idea of giving up, because you know you've got an amazing family history of just hustle and you know you're sort of in a way the latest iteration of that that that's sort of whole sort of do a family hustle in a way you're out there and you talk to a lot of young people and whether that's you going back to universities or you know getting out there in the media and talking about people as i said not just confined to entrepreneurship but people sort of you know pursuing goals and not giving up what do you go out and talk about what sort of the what are the themes that you like to talk about when you talk about never giving up for me never giving up it's like einstein i think said it the best right that the you know what was it the stupidity or say is trying something over and over again expecting a different result like that's crazy like that's madness um 
So I, I firmly believe in something along the lines. Never giving up doesn't just mean you're doing the same thing again and again and again and expecting you know it's something to change. It it doesn't doesn't mean that way. Like even wearing something down is just going to take a very very long amount of time. You, you got to just try different approaches and try different things and try things you've never tried before. And eventually, one of those things mm-hmm. will lead to your end goal. You just got to be. You don't have to be worried about the path that you take. So a lot of people when they're trying to see that end goal they always stick to this thing where i have to take this path to get there but it's not always the case sometimes you have to go through a whole roundabout to get to where you need to go but for me i look at it like look, as long as we get there we're okay it's fine and that that for me is really not giving up and i've always really really firmly believed in that so like you know in my last podcast with you guys i shared this as well in my experience of like you know becoming an entrepreneur when i first applied or you know like you know to get to you know, to a VC to try to get funding. Uh, initially, they wanted to, you know, buy me out, and I said, "No, uh, let's not do it that way." I didn't. I was too. Not, it was too early. I didn't want to sell my company yet. But they invested in me instead, and they created another project instead, where they pulled me in as a co-founder, and that sort of worked as well. But the end goal was the same. I still became an entrepreneur. Hmm. It was well, just, I mean, what does it take though to do that? I mean, what what is it that when well, young people, for example, when they graduate? Do they, do they have that skill? Do they, what, what is it, a skill or a quality? What, what is that never give upness that we're talking about? It's, it's hard to quantify. I mean, I can't say if it's a skill or is it a quality. I, I can tell you that I wasn't born with it. Um, I, I didn't have this when I was young. I was a very shy kid. I just, like I said, I came from my first job as a salesperson that I just really realized that you can always get what you want if you just really, really believe in it. And sometimes if you don't get what you want particularly, it could just be something else, but it just as equivalent to what you wanted before, it's just slightly different. Hmm. Um, it's it's a mindset. I think, honestly, it's a mindset. And if you want to get there, I guess one way you could do it is just fake it till you make it. Right, <laughs> hey, right. I mean, that's, work, that's work for some people, and I understand that. And it's... It's a confidence. I, I really, I don't know how to quantify it at all. It, it's not a skill. You can't learn it for sure, uh, but you can definitely find it inside of you. And I know that's inside of everyone if you just look for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an important part about surrounding yourself with the right people as well, isn't it? Who also share that quality, if you like, because I know you say it's not a skill. In a way, you were blessed because you were surrounded by people who had that kind of persistence, but some people may not have that or may not be surrounded by those people. So, you know, one of the things, they've got to go and seek those people out, right? That makes complete sense, yeah. You just seek those people out. I mean, watching YouTube videos of, like, you know, motivational speakers definitely helps as well because they give you tips and tricks on how to become this this way. At the end of the day, they're all talking about the same thing, right? Getting confidence and actually trying to achieve what you want to achieve and setting the goals. Yeah, yeah. I, I know you mentioned Tony Robbins as an example just earlier. I mean, have you been to any of his gigs? Oh, unfortunately, no. I mean, I, I, I wish. I really would love to go. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. I'm just curious. As a as a, an experiment, I would like to see what kind of impact he has on if a salesperson went to a Tony Robbins gig, what his performance would be like before and after. I mean, I'm sure it must have some kind of positive impact, right? But I mean, okay. So I mean, back to the whole sort of the 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 never give up uh, story. I mean, let me just sort of put the shoe on the other foot, if if I may, is that. It, one of the dangers I see is that sometimes startup founders never way the sort of persisting at something which will never work. I mean, how, how do you know what to never give up and when you should give up? There must be a time when 
quitting makes sense, right? Never like, timing of when to give up. I mean, <laughs> it's. What do you think? Do you think there's, there's never a time to give up? Hey, I mean, I give you an example, right? I mean, just think about this. I, I heard. I mean, I watched this. I watched this documentary about people climbing Mount Everest because I do kind of weird shit like that. So, I mean, because yeah. <laughs> I love that sort of stories of persistence. And there's these guides who take people. So for like $50,000, like Prem, you could go up to the top of Mount Everest. They'll take you to the top, right, with no experience, right? Mm-hmm. And they were talking to these guides who are professional guides. And they've sort of, they've summited like, you know, a dozen times. It gets a bit sort of blasé after a while. And they were saying like, you know, you have these guy these customers rich customers who come along and they want to get to the top of Everest and they pay you the money that's the deal right it says do you ever worry about the people that you take on board and he says yeah the the one i have the one i have the biggest problem with are entrepreneurs and athletes because they never give up and he said, well, yeah. what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, if you climb a mountain and, you know, you're sort of 100 meters away from the summit and the guy says, you've got to go back because, you know, blizzard coming in, we're all going to die. The entrepreneur says, nope, I'm going to never give up. I will go for it. And they're the dangerous ones because they never give up. So I'm just sort of curious, is there a time? And you sort of mentioned about changing your approach. So I, I always wonder what is the advice that you give to a startup founder who's sort of plugging away at something which you know may just not be working out. What do they do? I mean, it, it just take your example as a you know like a perfect example. Look, when I say never giving up, I mean like I said, it's about changing your approach and understanding that look, just because you're not going to get it that moment at that time doesn't mean you're never going to get it. Mm. That that particular entrepreneur who's climbing Mount Everest is risking his entire livelihood and life to get up there, and if he's going to willing to risk that just to get that ever you know that particular day on that summit yeah then he can do that and he'd probably die but if he just came back some other time and climbed it again the chances of him getting to the summit is still there he's still not giving up on his gold he's just going a different path and trying a different way to get there i mean for me and as an entrepreneur it's it's the same thing like i face so many problems in terms of how i have to deal with customers in terms of regulatory bodies in terms of partnerships even in terms of building the technology out to please customers there's never one way to get it there's always a multiple multitude of way Mm. and it's all about getting the timing right and actually understanding like what needs to be done when I, I actually wrote an article about this on my LinkedIn before as well. It's like, you know, knowing which battles you have to fight when right, right. Just, it there doesn't you mean you stop fighting. It doesn't mean you stop fighting that particular battle. It just means that you're, you're putting it aside for a little bit. You're prioritizing different things based on the costs and benefits and you're choosing which ones to fight. Mm-hmm. Cause as a person you're, you're on a daily basis. I I'm pretty sure that nobody has just one goal. Everyone has a lot of different goals that they want to achieve. Just because you're putting one goal aside for temporarily while you're trying to achieve something else doesn't mean that goal goes away. It just means it's on the back burner, but it's still there, and you're still going to try to find a way to get there. Yeah, choose the battles you want to fight. I mean, that's great advice. Thinking about yourself. you know, that entrepreneur, if I was him, I'd be up there, and if my guy told me to turn back, and he's like, well, if you go up there, you're going to die, I'd probably go back and say, <laughs> okay, you know, I'll come back next year. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean... Th- it's tough, isn't it? Because I guess, I guess the difference then, uh, what we're trying to get to is like, you know, we're talking about never give up, but you sort of qualified in the sense that, you know, you have to try different approaches. Like you say with Einstein and his sort of, you know, well-used term, it's like, you know, you've got to, you, you can't keep doing the same thing. So be persistent. I, I guess what we're trying to get to is like, be persistent with the goal, but be flexible with the approach to achieve that goal, right? Because maybe... 
I want to quote you on that. <laughs> All right, okay. Yeah, I copyrighted it, but I'm sure I just copied it from somebody else. And somebody else has said that for sure, right? But that, that's kind of what it is, isn't it? It's like, okay, I'm totally focused on this goal, but maybe this door's shut for me today, so I have to kind of look at something else, right? And that, yep. that's sort of what we learn, isn't it, in a way? I mean, that's a sales training scenario, really, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of what you learn early on in sales is that, you know, when somebody throws up an objection... It's not the end, is it? You kind of like exactly. find another way in, you know? So. Yeah, you just gotta you just gotta ask the right questions, and if you find another approach, and eventually you'll get there. Yeah, yeah. You're you're 100 right. You don't give up on the goal. You just, you can change your approach. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad we we talked that one through because I think we're sort of you know in this, on the same on the same page with that, and it, it's so important for people. Uh, somebody starting out on the journey that you started out to know that, isn't it? Because it's easy to kind of like get put off or, you know, bounced around by the, I don't know, the negativity of the normal working world can sometimes put people off, right? You know, and you talk I about... In, I think in entrepreneurial terms, the, the, that word we're actually talking about is called pivoting. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what it is, right? Like an entrepreneur, when they want to grow, their end goal is to be an entrepreneur, to be a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. But sometimes their business path that they've taken is not successful, so they pivot their business around to try a different methodology of you know, getting to the customers. That's exactly what it is. Exactly. You nailed it. Well done. So when you talk to, I mean, if you were to talk to young, uh, could be graduates, could be people entering the working world and potential entrepreneurs as well. You sort of talk about why you do what you do. You talk about the goal of being an entrepreneur. What is it? What is it when you actually look at what you do? I know it's a tough question because you may not even think about it on a day-to-day basis. But what is it that you think, actually, this is what it's all about? You know, because that 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 fight that you talk about, those battles, they never go away, do they? I mean, you know, when you're earning, no. like, when you're, when you're a billionaire, Prem, they'll still be there, right? Yeah. So you have to then choose, like, that kind of lifestyle, you know, so what is it about it that attracts you to it? Because I think that's a, an important part that people under, have to understand that oh, I'm not doing it because of the money. The money's sort of like a, a scorecard, really, isn't it? But there's something bigger than this. Look, for me, it's solving the problems for the customers. Like, I, I genuinely want to make people's lives easier. Because for me, if, if you ask me in terms of like my personality wise, I'm actually quite lazy. Lazy in terms of like I'll always try to find the most efficient and fastest way to get things done. I'm like right, an eighty right. twenty kind of guy. I don't I don't want to waste that extra fifty percent effort to get the twenty percent result. I'd rather just spend fifty percent to get eighty percent than spend the fifty percent getting another thing up to eighty percent. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, some people call that lazy because it's like trying to find the most efficient way to get there. And I for me, it's about doing that for the customer as well. I want the fastest, the easiest way for the customer to get whatever they want. And for me to be able to help them to get there at a mass scale level, that that's that is a reward in itself. That's I'm actually changing that customer's life. I'm I'm saving him time. I'm I'm saving him money or whatever I'm doing. It's affecting his his life or her life in a way where eventually one day it'll be a meaningful amount. Amazing, Prem, you're an inspiration. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Really enjoyed listening to your story and your philosophy. On everything, really. I mean, philosophy about life, I suppose. I mean, it's not just about business, but your attitude towards life is, is inspirational. And I think the listeners who have taken part of this story, shared this story with you today, will take a lot away from it, especially, you know, not just about how to go into business, but, you know, the importance. I mean, there was a lot of advice there, which I think just want to revisit very quickly. But that whole idea about, you know, if you want to be successful, model successful people, you know what Prem did, get into the office early and just sit and listen to 
those that you want to learn from, right? Look at how they do it. You don't have to read a book. You can just kind of watch what these people do. Sales experience as well. I mean, you know, I think we're both in agreement that that is so important for any entrepreneur as well, isn't it? And then yeah, definitely. persistence. Persistence, never give up, but keep changing your approach, right? You know, don't keep banging your head against the, the, the window like the fly, right? That's not going to get you out eventually. Yeah, true. You've got to find another way around. Prem Duar, everybody. MD and co-founder of Frank. Prem, where do people find out more about you? Well, you can go to my website, uh, harprem.com, H-A-R-P-R-E-M.com. Are you nabbed? And oh, well done. You bagged yeah. that one. <laughs> There's a bit of foresight. Definitely. There must be a lot of Harprems in the world now kicking themselves because they didn't get it. Yeah, I made sure I got that early on. <laughs> Good man. So harprem.com. And Prem, you'll be back hopefully and give us an update and come back and inspire the listeners as well with your stories we'd love that if you could really enjoyed having you on the show thank you we'll have you back soon thank you thank you so much for having me you've been listening to asia tech podcast find out more at atp.show